Welcome to Minnesota Matters. I'm Scott Peterson, and I'm joined by MNN's Bill Werner, Tasha Radel, and Mike Grimm. We're going to delve into what's going on in the North Star State. If it matters in Minnesota, we've got it covered. This week, a spotlight on the riveting new Minnesota-based podcast about an unsolved mystery dating back to 1951 and a holiday music recap from Star Tribune writer John Bream. But first... We wish you would leave the White House. We wish you would Not the usual the Christmas House. sentiments this we week on the steps of the Minnesota Capitol as the U.S. House voted to impeach President Donald Trump. M&N's Bill Werner, have you ever heard Christmas carols sung this way before? Well, Scott, I suppose somebody probably did it back in Christmas of 1998 when Bill Clinton had been impeached by the House and the nation was waiting for the Senate trial to begin. Or maybe way back in Christmas of 1973 when Richard Nixon was embroiled in Watergate and was facing almost certain impeachment and removal from office. This week, the impeachment scenario was to play out again for a third time in U.S. history. And among rallies across the country on the eve of the U.S. House vote, Hundreds at the state capitol. Raise your hand if this is not your first march since Trump took office. Raise your hand if you can't believe he's still in office. Can't believe that basically 50% of the country is behind this president that breaks the law. What we really need people to do is to be um, calling their senators and be letting them know that uh, if the senators don't vote to remove Trump, that we're going to work to remove the senators. It was pretty clear that Democrats who control the U.S. House would pass two articles of impeachment against the president, accusing him of abuse of power and obstructing Congress's investigation. But one prominent voice broke ranks. 7th District Minnesota Congressman Democrat Colin Peterson, who chairs the U.S. House Agriculture Committee, said his party did not make its case for impeachment and leadership had been too focused on trying to remove President Trump from office since he was elected. I did not like at all what went on with this Russia situation and the um, stuff that was done, you know, the Mueller report and all of that stuff when we had people on the news every night making proclamations that turned out not to be true. And uh, that's a lot of the problem here. Minnesota DFL Party Chairman Ken Martin said about fellow Democrat Peterson's stance. While I disagree strongly with his decision on impeachment, uh, the reality is the vast majority of people in the 7th District do not support impeachment. And Martin added, Peterson... He's survived for close to 30 years now in the most Republican district in the country held by a Democrat. And one of the reasons he does is because he actually represents his constituents ahead of his party. Is this why we came here to serve? To trample on due process rights? To appease the new Democrat socialist base? It was a marathon eight-plus-hour floor debate. Really more each side throwing speeches at one another. Minnesota Congressman Ilhan Omar's continuing argument with the president came up. Republican Whip Steve Scalise saying... Just this summer, over 90 Democrats voted to impeach the president for comments he made about the squad. So he makes comments about some other members of Congress who make a lot of comments about him, and 95 members vote to impeach the President of the United States. Majority Leader Steny Hoyer responded, Democrats did not choose impeachment. We did not wish for it. (laughs) However, President Trump's misconduct has forced our constitutional republic to protect itself. Article 
one is adopted. The question, the yeas are 229, the nays are 198, Article 2 is adopted. The House has acted on a very sad day to protect and defend the Constitution of the United States. We didn't lose one Republican vote and, and three Democrats voted for us. One of those Democrats was Minnesota Congressman Colin Peterson, who in a written statement issued immediately after the vote said the impeachment process, quote, has not convinced the people in my district we have impeachable offenses and that the president needs to be removed. The Democrats always stick together. Now think of it. Three Democrats went over to our side. No Republicans. It's unheard of. If he decides to run for re-election, Colin Peterson's Republican opponent will likely be former Lieutenant Governor and State Senator Michelle Fischbach. She contends House Speaker Nancy Pelosi gave Peterson a pass on the impeachment vote. She's facing a tough re-election, and I think she's just letting him off so that he can say to the voters in his district that he voted no. After the impeachment vote, Speaker Pelosi said she could not be prouder or more inspired than by, as she put it, the moral courage of House Democrats. We never asked one of them how they were going to vote. We never whipped this vote. We saw the result when everyone else did. And also this week, Minnesota Senator Amy Klobuchar. Seven Democratic hopefuls on the stage in Los Angeles in presidential debate number six, Klobuchar and moderate rival Pete Buttigieg clashing multiple times. In one exchange, Klobuchar admonished Buttigieg, an Indiana mayor, to respect the other candidate's experience. We should have someone heading up this ticket that has actually won and been able to show that they can gather the support that you talk about. That matters. Thank you, Senator. I got to respond to that. I got to respond to that. If you want to talk about the capacity to win, try putting together a coalition to bring you back to office with 80% of the vote as a gay dude in Mike Pence's Indiana. Well, Scott, now we'll take a quick break for the holidays, then it's on to the Iowa caucuses, New Hampshire and South Carolina primaries, and then Super Tuesday. Thank you, Bill. Minnesota Matters returns after this. Welcome back to The Dog Show. Up next, we have Satchmo. Satchmo is a member of the Shelter Pet Group. That's right, a group known especially for their couch-snuggling, ball-chasing, face-licking, tail-wagging, backyard-hanging, and, of course, companionship. And what breed would you say Satchmo is? I'd have to go with maybe a lavish terrier-hound, chihuahua-looking kind of mix. Tremendous dog. Mm -hmm. I'd also like to point out Satchmo's coloring, a white, gray, brown, black brindle, simply marvelous. You know, it's such a treat to watch a dog like this. Now, let's see him in action. Look how he makes eye contact with his person. That's actually known as the treat stare. How intuitive. And now he appears to be excitedly turning in circles. Ah, the happy dance, so common with this group. And finally, the loving face lick. It's great how he just gets in there and, well, licks. Fantastic. But really, the best way to know an amazing shelter pet like Satchmo is to meet one. Visit theshelterpetproject.org today. Adopt. Brought to you by Maddie's Fund, the Humane Society of the United States, and the Ad Council.
Welcome back to Minnesota Matters. A new Minnesota-based podcast dives deep into a local Minneapolis mystery that's never been solved. In 1951, three boys ages 8, 6, and 4 left their home to go to a park just down the street. They never returned and were never found. MNN's Tasha Radel tells us the podcast Long Lost will explore the 1951 incident, the family's dogged pursuit of the truth, and the work of investigators who recently discovered important new clues and identified suspects. I can tell you firsthand this podcast will captivate you. It definitely did me and has left me wanting answers and closure for this loving family. Joining me to talk about the Twin Cities PBS investigative podcast Long Lost is author Jack Elhai. On November 10th, 1951, Kenny, David, and Danny Klein, who, who were 8, 6, and 4 years old, on a Saturday afternoon left home to go to Farview Park, just a few blocks from their from their house, and uh, were were not seen ever again. Uh, we're not seen at the park, and there has been no sign of them since then. Um, uh, two caps that were thought to have belonged to the boys were found on top of the river ice, the Mississippi River ice, a little over a mile from their house. And uh, that was one of the things that led the Minneapolis police at the time to conclude after just a five-day investigation that the boys had probably drowned, gone to the river and drowned there. Uh, But no bodies were ever found and no other evidence connecting the boys with the river. And the the family, the parents, uh, Betty and Kenneth Klein, never accepted that conclusion and indeed now it seems highly unlikely that that's what happened to the boys. And so they kept searching for the rest of their lives. Betty and Kenneth uh, both died in the last uh, 15 years or so, and since then their uh, remaining sons, uh, living sons, have carried on that search as well as two Wright County Sheriff's deputies who on their own time have undertaken an investigation and have gotten much further along than the Minneapolis police did in 1951. Can you bring in how the investigation kind of um, shifted to, to Illinois? Uh, was there like a, a, I guess, a relation there? How did that come about? Well, one, one thing that the, the Wright County uh, deputies uh, have drawn from their contemporary investigation of this case is the possible involvement of, of one suspect. There are several possible suspects, but one of them is a man who was a park worker at Farview Park who left the Twin Cities area soon after the boys disappeared, relocated to Chicago, and was later under investigation and implicated uh, in the disappearance of three boys in the Chicago area in 1955. Uh, He was not convicted uh, of any crimes in connection with the Chicago crime. Uh, but he, because of the the, uh, the possibility that it's not coincidental that he had a tangential uh, relationship with two different sets of three boys, who uh, one of whom was murdered, the other disappeared, uh, led the has led the sheriff's deputies to think that he's a possible suspect. And then I think I had heard too that um, there was a woman that visited with investigators that rented rooms in the area, and uh, she, but she didn't really come forward after seeing them. 
playing basketball. Am I getting that connection right? Yes. Um, she, this, this woman was terminally ill, and she came forward about uh, 15 years ago or so, maybe a little longer, uh, as a result of the work of a private investigator that the Klein family had hired back then. And she gave a, a near-deathbed confession that she had been um, renting an apartment to two men in the neighborhood in 1951, and that on the day the boys disappeared, she saw those two men playing basketball with the boys and then leaving with them, walking in the direction of the park, and then uh, later coming back without the boys. And she was very fearful, especially of one of the, the older of the two men, and so she wanted to get that off her chest. And, and so those two men are also possible suspects. Uh, and, and there are others as well. And when we talk about others, I believe that there was a truck driver that was also implicated? Right. Um, yeah, I, d- I don't want to say too much about him because he is the primary suspect. And I don't want to uh, give listeners any spoilers uh, for the podcast. But uh, this man was a neighbor, lived just a block away. All right. And, you know, so obviously this this mystery hasn't been solved, but your podcast really goes pretty deep into these uh, events. Can you tell us a little bit about the podcast itself? Do you talk to any family members or parties? Or can you kind of, I I guess, give us a a sense of what listeners can expect? Long Lost has a mix of sources including a lot of interviews, including many interviews with family members, as well as interviews with people who have invested the case, law enforcement officers who have invested the case, and the two sheriff's deputies who are currently investing, uh, investigating the case. And also um, other people with an involvement who come into the picture. And then there is some archival audio um, dating back to 1951 when the Minneapolis police were originally uh, looking at the case. And what we're hoping for with the podcast is to perhaps flush out somebody out there who knows something. You know, this happened 68 years ago. That's a long time ago. But there may be someone with um, secondhand or thirdhand information that might be helpful. And already we have heard from several people who have volunteered information after listening to the podcast or or after reading my book uh, the lost brothers and um and then another purpose of the podcast and, and another focus of it is to look at how the klein family has gotten through all this and has stayed together um there have been um uh, consequences for the family it's had a huge effect on them but the parents um, never wavered in their uh, in, in their determination to search for the boys, and the sons who are still with us uh, have carried that on. The um, you know just more nuts and bolts things about the podcast is an episode releases every Thursday, so um, by the end of December, all six episodes will be released. And we'll be back with part two of this spotlight on the podcast, Long Lost, When Minnesota Matters, returns. (music) 
Welcome back to Minnesota Matters. Now, here is part two of our spotlight on the podcast, Long Lost. And Jack, I have to ask you, what, what I guess, captivated you to this case? Or how did you become um, involved in this project and the book? My involvement goes way back to 1997, when I happened to be reading one Sunday morning the newspaper and saw in the classified ads an ad that I later learned the clients put in the paper every year uh, on the anniversary of the boy's disappearance. And it said that they were seeking information about their sons, and it left a phone number. And I called that number, and I spoke with Betty Klein on the phone. She invited me to um, visit them to talk more about it. By that time, the clients had moved from Minneapolis to a farmhouse in rural Monticello, Minnesota. And so I did that and was immediately drawn in by Betty and Kenneth, who were uh, such warm and kind and caring people, yet when they talked about their sons, their missing sons, and their determination to find them, it showed such uh, resoluteness and and strength um, that it was really remarkable. So what uh, I have to say, what drew me in was, was the parents and the way they have handled this and, and, and uh, tried to carry it forward. And, you know, I don't know, obviously I don't want you to put words in anyone's mouth, but um, did, did the parents or did, did the Klein um, couple feel that maybe law enforcement didn't do enough or weren't they pointing fingers at anybody? Well, they were definitely dissatisfied with the investigation that the Minneapolis police conducted in 1951 and the, and the police closing the case back then without concluding that any crime had occurred. And they were also unhappy with the unwillingness of uh, the Minneapolis Police Department to assist them after that. And um, in addition, the clients contacted a large number of elected officials, FBI, um, all kinds of people, and really didn't receive much help at all from those. So they were on their own. And yes, I think they were angry about that. And that that anger is still in um, in the family, but it's been somewhat lessened by the work of the of the Wright County detectives Jessica Miller and Lance Sauls, who have really done everything that should have been done back in 1951 and have, have advanced the case a great deal. Well, you said the case was closed. So is it is it an open case now, or is it kind of in limbo? It's uh, it's in a state of limbo, and the. Um, I think a good way to characterize it would be to say it's an orphaned case, meaning that there is no law enforcement agency with, with jurisdiction that uh, has it open or, as of right now anyway, is willing to reopen it. And um, along with my colleagues at Twin Cities PBS, I'm hoping that this podcast will have the effect of making those agencies take another look. And I have to ask, I mean, obviously this is such a personal a project, I'm, I'm guessing for you, that, that this is probably with you every day as well, this mystery. It is. Uh, indeed, it is with me every day, and it has been for more than 20 years now. Uh, when I first started writing about this case, I wrote a magazine piece in 1998 about it and kept in touch with the family after that. So... It's been a, a big part of my personal and professional life since then. 
for listeners uh, out there that want to find this podcast, what is the best way to go about doing that? Well, it, the podcast is available on every podcast platform that you might use to get any podcast. And you can also listen to it through um, the uh, website, tptoriginals.org. And all the episodes are there. You can listen to them, uh, download them, um, or subscribe it, uh, using the um, you know normal podcast platforms as a way to subscribe. Thanks again to my guest, Jack Elhai, author of The Long Lost Podcast. Minnesota, let's bring closure to this family and bring Kenny, David, and Danny home. Back to you, Scott. Thank you, Tasha. Up next, my conversation with Star Tribune music critic John Bream on holiday music. That's when Minnesota Matters returns. Adopt U.S. Kids presents Multiple Choice Parenting. Your daughter just had her first breakup. Do you, A, put yourself in her shoes? How could he do this to you? And for Sheila... She she has split ends. B, console her. Oh, sweetie, this is going to happen a lot. Four, maybe five more times before you get married. C, take charge. Got to get this all straightened out. Keep a little talking to, man to man, mano a mano. Hey, Steve. Is now a good time? No? Okay, no problem. Bye. Or D, help her find a new boyfriend. I know a great place to meet boys. The internet. Nice, single boys. Never mind. How about some ice cream? As a parent, there are no perfect answers. But you don't have to be perfect to be a perfect parent. Thousands of teens in foster care will love you just the same. For more information on how you can adopt, visit AdoptUSKids.org. A public service announcement from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, AdoptUSKids, and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Minnesota Matters. I'm Scott Peterson. For many of us, popular holiday music is an essential part of the holiday season. I recently spoke to Star Tribune music critic John Bream about how that tradition began, what makes a good holiday song, and why we keep coming back to the same songs, good and bad, year after year. When did pop stars start singing Christmas songs, or when did it become popular? Oh, I think it probably turned around when uh, White Christmas became a big hit from a movie for Bing Crosby. I'm dreaming of a white Christmas. And then after that, you know, these, these songs have just kind of blossomed and snowballed, so to speak. Um, and it seems like everyone records them. It seems like it's also spread across every genre as well. Yeah, I, I was listening the other day. I, I like to, in the car occasionally, listen to Soul Town, which is a serious XM station that plays old soul music. And it's like, how many versions of the Christmas song do I need to hear? Lionel Richie and Brian McKnight and Odd Infinitum. I mean, I'm happy with Mel Torme's version. That's enough. Chestnuts roasting on an open fire. Jack Frost nipping at your nose. You know, that's a that's an interesting question as well, because some of the songs that you've mentioned here as far as White Christmas and talking about Mel Torme, uh, those are some older versions of these songs. What is it that makes a, a holiday song stand the test of time, in your opinion? Well, two things. One, it's the melody. 
intuits the message. You know, in regular pop songs, the message isn't always important. It's kind of the catchiness and and how it makes you feel. But the way Christmas and holiday songs make you feel is really important. So it's got to have a melody that you remember and a message that connects with people. It's got, it, you know, there's there's got to be more emotion in Christmas songs than there is in you know your everyday ordinary pop songs. For every good holiday song or for every holiday song that succeeds with that criteria you just mentioned, there's probably 10 or 20 that don't succeed. Uh, what are some of the strangest that you can think of that you've come across in your years as a uh, music listener and critic? Oh, where there's Please Daddy, Don't Get Drunk This Christmas. John Denver recorded that. <laughs> Elmo and Patsy in Old Country Duel did Grandma Got Run Over by a Reindeer. How about a more recent Kenny Chesney, All I Want for Christmas is a Real Good Tan. <laughs> and, of course, for the Minnesotans out there, there's Yingle Bells by Yogi Jorgensen. A Yingle Bells, a Yingle Bells, a Yingling all the way. I should have worn long underwear in that one horse open sleigh. Are people still writing new holiday songs, and are they doing it successfully? Well, absolutely. Lots of people are writing new stuff. The problem is they're not getting widespread exposure. I think the last big um, Christmas, new Christmas hit was All I Want for Christmas is You by Mariah Carey, and that's been around for a couple decades now, almost. Bob Dylan, just within the last couple years, put out a Christmas album, and I know that you're kind of a Dylan scholar. What were your thoughts on that album? I don't know that it was necessary for Bob Dylan to put out a Christmas album, but it was part of Dylan's sort of consistent um, pursuit of American music. But hearing a guy who's always had a dubious voice, in many people's opinion, and now his voice is kind of croaky and raspy and sort of beyond musical redemption, uh, do a, an album of Christmas music was probably not a big turn-on for a lot of people, except for real hardcore Dylanologists. And another one, just on TV the other night, Brian Setzer, who lives in the Twin Cities, not originally from here, but he's lived here for a decade. And he's got a new Christmas musical song out that's a takeoff on the Flintstones. So it's a yabba-dabba holiday song. We've mentioned uh, along the course of the interview a few of the songs that have appealed to you over the years, and as we wrap things up here, I'm just wondering, is there one in particular that uh, that melts your heart every year this time of year? Absolutely not. Um, I don't go for particular songs. I think it's more of who's singing the song. And, you know, we I've got hundreds and hundreds of Christmas albums, but um, the family has a basket here by the boombox. We're kind of old school, so we'll throw in five, six, whatever the, the the player takes, five, six albums at a time and put it on random shuffle and just let them come up. So, you know, whether it's it's Bing Crosby or Mel Torme or Charles Brown or Nat King Cole, it's more the singer than it is the song with me for Christmas songs. So I think if you mix it up rather than having one artist straight through, it becomes a more satisfying experience. Christmas 
that's going to do it for this week. On behalf of all of us here, happy holidays. Thanks for listening, and please tune in again next week for Minnesota Matters on this MNN station.